Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everyone and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and assistant professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today, I am thrilled to be interviewing Alexander Nemirov about his new book, Fierce Poise, Helen Frankenthaler and 1950s New York, which was published by Penguin Press in March of 2021. Dr. Nemirov is the Carl and Marilyn Toma Provostial Professor in the Arts and Humanities at Stanford University. In 2019, he received the Lawrence A. Fleischman Award for Scholarly Excellence in the Field of American Art History from the Smithsonian Institution's Archives of American Art. He is the author of numerous fascinating books, including Summoning Pearl Harbor, Acting in the Night, Macbeth and the Places of the Civil War, and my personal favorite, The Body of Raphael Peel, Still Life and Selfhood, 1812 to 1824. The book we'll be discussing today is a dazzling biography of Helen Frankenthaler, one of the 20th century's most respected painters in the years she came of age as an artist in post-war New York. The book examines in particular the 1950s, when Frankenthaler made some of the most daring paintings of her day, and also came into her own as a woman, traveling the world, falling in and out of love, and engaging in an ongoing artistic education. Dr. Nemirov brings these years to life by focusing on key defining moments, from her first encounter with Jackson Pollock's strip paintings to her first solo gallery show, and her tumultuous breakup with the eminent art critic Clement Greenberg. Fierce Boys is an exhilarating ride through the mid-20th century art scene and a brilliant portrait of a young artist through the moments that shaped her. I feel so privileged to get to discuss this book with its author today, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Alex Nemiroff, welcome to the show. Thank you, Allison. It's great to be here. Well, I wonder if we might begin, as I always actually do with these interviews, by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you were born, where you attended graduate school. You can say a little bit about where your career has taken you, and maybe most importantly, how you became interested in Helen Frankenthaler. So just give us kind of some of your background, if you would. Sure. I mean, I think all of that is really wrapped up into one in a certain sense. I was born in in Bennington, Vermont in 1963. Um, So already, spoiler alert, you know, that's where Helen Frankenthaler went to college, Bennington (laughs) College, Uh and where my father, um, his first year there at Bennington in 1948-49 was her senior year, and she took a class with him. So there's, although I never met her, there's already something um, interactive between her and I. Um, Absolutely. I, I went to uh, undergraduate at University of Vermont, and I went to uh, grad school at 
uh, Yale, just up the road from where Helen Frankenthaler was living at that portion of that time of her life. Um, uh, and uh, I started out teaching at Stanford back in the 90s, and then I went back to Yale and taught there for uh, a number of years, a decade or so, and then came back to Stanford in 2012. And uh, that's, that's a kind of brief story. But about Helen, I would say, uh, eventually, I worked up the gumption, the courage, the maturity to be able to write about her work. I, I had been interested in it for a while. Um, but I think one day in 2016, I was at the Milwaukee Art Museum, and I found myself looking at a painting of hers there from the 1950s, a painting I discuss in the book called Hotel Cro-Magnon. Mm -hmm. I, I uh, found myself looking at it for more time than at all the other pictures in the museum combined. And I thought that told me something. And I date the origins of the book I wrote kind of to that day. I think it's always interesting to, to hear how projects come about. And I almost want to ask you, you know, even more, how did you come to write this specific book? But you've already gotten us a good amount in actually to some of what I love in the introduction, which is where you speak most directly and perhaps most personally to, I think you say at one point that her, the person her art patiently waited for me to become in order to write this book and in order to say, assess, though maybe that's not the right word, her paintings properly, that you had to kind of grow into the, the right person to be able to grapple with them. So why is this the moment in your life, if you don't mind telling us, that, that Fierce Boys you know, came to be born in the full form that it now exists in? Yeah, that's such a great question. I'm a late bloomer, you know. I think uh, I needed to get into my 50s to kind of be where she was in her 20s. Mm, wow. Um, and I think in a way, as I talk about in the introduction, in order to be able to think back a little bit, which I'm doing very much these days, about who I was in my 20s, not that the book is autobiographical in any obvious or self-evident way, aside from the introduction you're talking about. Uh, but nonetheless, I think it took a while for me not only to catch up to Helen's paintings, her ability to portray life on the wing and the special sensations, the special and often, let's face it, very confused emotions of being in your 20s. And this is so much a book, not only about someone in their 20s, but I think for someone in their 20s, um, that, uh, you know, it took me a while to catch up to that, but it took me a while to kind of um, access that world of feeling in myself, I suppose, uh, you know, or let's put it this way, that recollecting those times now, those times are hardly a recollection at all. They're quite vivid, incredibly vivid. Uh, and perhaps Helen has in the ongoing present tense of her works, which is to say she never made paintings to be historical or dated artifacts of any kind that would have struck her with horror. Uh, you know, the, the ongoing present tense generosity of her work enables me and maybe other viewers to kind of um, come into different kinds of awareness. Mm -hmm. I like this idea that we grow into understanding certain artists, certain authors. I, it's a silly thing to admit, but I remember so not ready being, or being not ready for the novels of Emile Zola when I was in college taking a class on French realism. And it only took a couple more years when I just devoured them. I mean, I couldn't stop. And now I try to read them and they're too gruesome. I, I've become too sensitive or something for that hard-edged realism or naturalism. So I, I, it makes me, you saying that this book is maybe for someone in their 20s makes me really excited to assign it. And I did think, you know, is this something I could assign as like a case study reading when we get to abstract expressionism in the survey? You know, how would this read? Which chapter would I choose? Um, 
And maybe this lends itself to another question about the introduction. I adored this moment. And the introduction, I should say to listeners, is very different from the rest of the book. It is the only moment, I think, where you're very personal and these intersections in your life and your background and hers, you know, are evident. But you talk in the introduction about finally getting up the courage to teach what we call the survey, the, the, the history of Western European art from the Renaissance onward in 2007. And that having some intersection because you started feeling like you could speak as a person moved. And that opened up a socket that this book seems to stem from too. Do you mind saying a little bit more about that? I'm in awe that you, you didn't have to teach the survey until 2007 when I think most of us, that's the first thing we teach as adjuncts. It's the thing they need us to come in and do before we get tenure track jobs. But your experience was so different. What, what might you reveal further about that? Yes, I think uh, I decided to teach that you're so right that it's often a course that's seen as a quote unquote service course and is mm-hmm. sort of pawned off on people who are have less rank, et cetera. But I always thought it was the scariest of all courses, the most demanding to teach, and I simply didn't have the guts to, to even try. But then almost in my way of being one day just walking down the street, I decided that I could do it and that I would do it. And um, you know, here we are 14 years later, and I've done it every fall except for one since 2007. Wow. I think, uh, but further to your point, I believe that I understood intuitively that I needed to talk about works of art that I loved, that I cared about, and speaking, trying, and often failing but trying to articulate what it was that makes the encounter with a work of art enchanting rather than disenchanting. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a short sketch of me as a young professor would indicate that, and it would be true that I taught from a position of um, callow cynicism and know-it-all, you know, distance, which is a sort of default position for many people who are not still finding their way, right? Because to speak with conviction and passion and belief is much harder to do. It's very personal. It's very vulnerable. Of course, a lot of strength comes from that vulnerability. But I think eventually in my early 40s, I just realized that not only could I do that, not only should I do it, but I must do it. And I I did it. And I I do think you're right. I think the book is of a piece with that personal style. And uh, I actually, to say one more thing about that year 2007 that's related to the survey, but different. uh, I actually think of this moment at the College Art Association meetings that year. You perhaps, I don't know if you would have been in attendance or not, but I was just asked to do some run of the mill thing, you know, be a respondent for something. And for whatever reason, I remember getting up in one of these big ballrooms there in the Hilton in New York and speaking um, about how terrifying it is to fly over the Atlantic Ocean at night. And uh, not from a fear of flying, but from a sense of the existential emptiness of existence, let's say. Mm. So I think uh, my career as a holy fool or mystic who is out of, out of place in an academic setting, I think almost dates as in some fantastic origin story from that, that moment. You know, I think, you know, and predictably half the people thought that was the most amazing thing they'd ever heard. And the other half thought that it was, well, to put it kindly, like, a category mistake, right? Like uh, a sermon being delivered in the Hilton and to people who are not interested in being sermonized. And that pretty much sums up people's response to what I do, but uh, Mm -hmm. I would have it no other way. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I would have it any other way. I I tend to like, I mean, I, I would be totally down for being preached to by Alex Nemirov in the this enchanting survey that, that you paint a picture of. And 
You know, that weirdly aligns, I think, with my experiences of you. We, we've chatted occasionally about the, the intermittent moments when we've seen each other at things like CAA or under various circumstances. And I think the very first time I met you was when you were still in this, how did you describe it? The cynicism, know-it-all, very objective, very hard-edged version of yourself as a scholar that now meets with this very different, um, that I think aligns a lot more with how I am in terms of, I, I definitely am, am the one in the survey who is speaking from the place of, you know, isn't this fascinating? This is what I'm passionate about. My God, look how World War I destroyed us. I mean, you know, just this very visceral kind of place. And that does not appeal to everybody. Um, I do tend to think it appeals to undergraduates more than maybe CAA attenders. Not that there's anything wrong uh, with our, our colleagues, but it's hard to preserve this sense of the kind of mystical wonder of looking at paintings like you so obviously do in terms of, of Helen Frankenthaler. So this maybe yes. leads me to, to want to say something else, which is that every now, after reading this book, all I want to do is refer to Helen as Helen, which you do throughout the book. And I wonder if you might say a little bit about that as a mode. It too is such a departure from the normal uh, kind of objective, empirical, art historical, you know, refer to artists generally by their last names, unless they're Leonardo, and, and then it's, a, you know, they reach a whole different level of cachet. But this kind of personal element, it's so interesting how it infected me. I, I really stumble to say Frankenthaler now, because I so want to go to this place of a kind of personal relationship that you reached and that you transport us to in the book. How hard of a decision was that to make? What Did you have to convince your editor or anything like that? Or did you just leave yeah. and not look back? These are such great questions about process. I, I, I think I love them most of all because it gives me a chance to actually be the historian or critic of my own journey, my own enterprise in doing this book. But let me just say first on the survey that you know, you say, yes, it's the kind of thing that appeals to undergraduates uh, more than art historians, let's say. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that. But more than that, there's a there's a need for anyone who thinks in those terms, namely expresses what you've expressed. And I have no doubt that you think this way yourself, that uh, the undergraduates are wise. Mm. Or as I put it, uh, they haven't learned to dislike art or be suspicious of it already, you know? So that's a kind of wisdom and mm -hmm. to teach to that point, far from being like a lowering or a pandering or whatever the case it is, is to truly be out on the open ocean instead of like hugging the shore in a little rowboat, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, to the know. person, to the person who, might say, well, that's just speaking to undergrads. I would say, go out in the open ocean, see what it's like, you know, absolutely speak from yeah. the heart about the book. I would say, um, there was never any doubt that she would be called Helen. My mm -hmm. editor never, who was fantastic, just fantastic editor, never doubted that. Um, and I think the reason is because I wanted the book to be like all good art history, not a simple add-on or sort of secondary elaboration of some real thing that was happening elsewhere, but to be truly, uh, as much as it could be, one and the same with what it's talking about, to be in the phrase, an immersive experience, right? To plunge the, plunge the reader right in, make my, make my protagonist be a heroine, as in a novel. And when people say this reads almost like fiction, that's a very high compliment mm. to me. I, I read very little art history. Most of what I read is fiction. And I think, uh, funny how this is, but I think my switch over to reading fiction purely is uh, more or less coincident with the turning to teach the survey, et cetera. And if you like growing up and just realizing that uh, the only way to do this is with a kind of uh, intensity of conviction. And I think fiction writing 
does do that. It's funny. I just read my first Zola novel just this year. Um, and uh, oh, which one? Tell me which one you read. German all. Oh, God. Wow. I, yes. So yes. I understand what you're saying, right? I was reading it just trying to educate myself, but, uh, you know, uh, and I just read Proust uh, for mm. the first time, just finished Remembrance of Things Past after my father, whose favorite book it undoubtedly was, uh, gave me uh, the three volumes set back in the 1980s, I believe. But again, on this idea of a late being a late bloomer, I um, came to it eventually, as in 2021, and read it and am changed by it, for sure, have so many thoughts. And it obviously connects to ideas about who I was when I was younger, etc. But I think um, first person, Helen, it's, I don't want to be an expert. I don't want to be a scientist of art. I don't want to be a professor of art, if that term means some sort of distanced, uh, knowledgeable person. I want to take someone into a story and uh, again, if, if, if people think of it as having the feel of a novel, that's really a high compliment. And in its own way, the, the different kinds of criticisms that the book has gotten, which I, I don't really read the really negative reviews, but I, I get the gist of them. And I think a lot of them, not all of them, you know, a lot of them are more or less from people who don't like uh, the very personal response uh, or the personal way in which the book is written or the, mm -hmm. the novelistic way, whatever, whatever it is. Right. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors, delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart protein plus and keto. These are two minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, I think to those who have the kind of heart or mind to whom a book like this appeals, is I mean, it's just overwhelmingly all the things you said. It, it does read, I hadn't thought about it till now, but it does read like a novel. You're sort of, I mean, I read it in two days, just cover to cover. And I have to admit with these interviews, I usually... I really chip away at them over a long time. And I'm almost embarrassed to admit that, but I just, at the very end of the day, will try to read an hour or read a chapter. It was like this one I was addicted to. I mean, it, it was, I hope this doesn't denigrate it to say, but it's like the best beach read or the best beginning of the summer read. And her paintings almost call to lay in sand and have the wind on your face and the ocean sort of caressing the, the coast because it puts you in that mindset of presentness and vividness that you summon repeatedly over the course of the book as you're describing her paintings and how they came about. It, uh, I, and, and to hear that it was Germinal that you read, which I just have to say, I think is one of the greatest novels of all time. I mean, is, is just exceptional. And by the same token, I don't think I'll ever read it again. I, it's so heartbreaking. I don't think I could go to that place of, of reading it 
And I envy yeah. you for just having read it. I don't know how else to put it. That's the silly well, thing to say. But. To say to say a little bit more about that and encompassing a lot of your really wonderful remarks. Uh, uh, you know, Helen's work is about the seriousness of pleasure. You know, mm-hmm. it's about, or to put it slightly differently, the seriousness of lightness. You know, the very things that have led people in her day and in our day to dismiss her work as so much sort of, I guess the phrase would be kind of lightweight, uh, you know, decoration, like Mm -hmm. pulsations of color in seemingly random patterns, etc. To me, have such import in terms of telling me or offering me a way to think about what it is to be alive. And the notion of being on the beach is a very good example. Helen loved the beach, but just the sense of you know, the shadow of the cloud on the sand, uh, the shell on the shore, uh, the ripple of the tide, the tan of one's arm, you know, uh, the feeling of the sand in one's toes. Why should that not also have a great and moving um, import in our life, you know? Uh, And I think from my point of view, Although I think of Helen's work as being basically Shakespearean in the sense that this sort of um, medium of lightness can contain high tragedy as well as great joy. And she could have her, you know, Macbeth-like characters as well as her Midsummer Night's Dream characters uh, that... um, yeah, there's just a way that uh, she teaches me. She takes me out of another aspect of who I was when I was younger, which is simply Allison. That for that me, um, grief and gravity are the, were the only things. So even as I was perhaps callowly cynical and a little maybe overly enamored of the deconstruction, deconstructive modes that. I was trained in in the 1980s at Yale, I was also feeling that, um, you know, the, the, the soldier lying dead on the beach in the Second World War or any other moment of such gravity was the only thing to talk about, right? And mm-hmm. that there's a, you know, sort of funereal or melancholic feeling to those things, works of art and otherwise, that I regard as uh, distinctive and memorable, you know, so acting in the night, you know, what a double whammy, it's about a performance of Macbeth during the Civil War. And I think back when that came out, people would say to me, this was in 2010, like, wasn't that depressing to write about, you know, a play of bloodshed in a scene of bloodshed in a world of bloodshed. And in fact, it was totally exhilarating because Mm -hmm. it was a very fun project to work on, but the philosophical center of it was all about darkness, about, about, you know, Lady Macbeth sleepwalking basically, and now cut to Helen. And it's just, uh, you know, even being underground, underground, like the miners in Germinal, you know, for example, for Helen being in the caves at Altamira and Lascaux is fundamentally a joyous experience. And even as someone said to me once, basically a feeling of being outdoors, you know, of seeing the summer sun or coming back up into above ground and seeing the beach as it were, you know, Mm -hmm. and that gladness of being alive, why should we despise it? You know, the, the commercial culture, of course, has long since captured this feeling and called it called it being in the moment and self-care and all these things, but it's actually much more profound than that. And Helen's paintings, uh, to me at least, deliver that feeling of, um, you know, the, the sensation of wind on your skin, for example, better than, maybe better than any other artist's work who ever lived. Mm-hmm. I want to follow up. And now we're, we're digging into the book, um, and you already mentioned the, the chapter on her seeing 
uh, with her partner at the time, the, the Altamira Caves and, and the works that resulted. Um, maybe I should just ground our listeners a little bit in, in the overall shape of the book, which is um, it comprises two overall parts and has 11 chapters within those parts. And of course, an introduction and a coda at the end. And each chapter is centered around a specific date though maybe that's looser than it seems when you first encounter it just in the table of contents. And the experience of the Altamira Caves is one of those in terms of the, of the overarching kind of date structure, moment structure of the book that occurs August 1st, 1958, and is actually the ninth chapter in the book. So we've, we've skipped way ahead, but I want to follow up partly because you, you were speaking so beautifully of, of what... Helen's paintings are like in in your mind and and soul, perhaps as you encounter them. And I want to ask you about visual analysis, about what we sometimes call formal analysis or used to be called ekphrasis, because you are one of the, I think personally the greatest writers of visual analysis. I mean, living in our world right now. And I do read a lot of art history still, for better or for worse. I'm still early enough in my career where I feel like I just have to be latched on to to what everybody else is doing. This podcast is evidence of that. If you will allow me, I want to read one snippet of a description of mountains and sea, a painting uh, that comes about in terms of discussion in the third chapter on the year 1952. Um, it's called New York Desire is the Theme of All Life. And you've already kind of touched on the, the, the beauty of desire, the seriousness of pleasure that this book mentions. So readers or listeners, bear with me just as I read this little section. Alex, I hope it's not too weird. And then I want to ask you, how do you write visual analysis like this? So this is a quote from inside the book. Mountains and sea is a study in lightness. It is palpably a lifting painting. The shapes in it remain stable. A bouquet of pastel colors anchors it at the center, almost as if the picture were a massive floral still life. But each color refuses to be dense. Lightness comes into being so the painting implies precisely in its precariousness. She holds this levity in place, catching it, not as the butterfly collector nets the specimen, but miraculously to let the caught thing respire at the tip of her fingers. I mean, this is one of many, just you never indulge at great length in this kind of formal analysis, but it's just breathtaking when you do. And it's so characteristic of your work, I think more generally across all books, you really have this ability. So might you share, especially with those listeners who are students and grad students and, and wanting to, to grapple with this kind of formal description, how do you do this? How important yeah, is it well, to you? First of all, thank you so much, Allison, for your, your kind words. Uh, and I, I think description of works of art is very so important, obviously, for what it is we do. Um, the, the challenge, of course, is to bring the work to life rather than kill it. Uh, mm-hmm. And in that sense, thinking aloud here, the, the, the analogy to butterfly collecting is refers to uh, what Helen was doing, but also to what the art historian needs to do, which is, in short, not kill, not kill the work, right? So... I think in this book, the moments of set piece description, and I do like that word set piece, you know, are basically the equivalent to city parks in a grid of streets, which is to say, you know, you or I or our listeners are walking along through streets. And so when you come to a park, right, and it's a different kind of space, like Madison Square Park is a favorite park of mine, for example. So it's just coming out into a, a different setting with different rules and different possibilities. And the writer needs to adjust right there to the change in climate, let's say, the climate, change in feel. So that's one point I would make is it's, it's like a play within the play. It's like a different kind of experience. Uh, 
I mean, not not foreign to the city streets, right, of the ordinary hum of the prose, but because after all, in any park, most any park, you can see something, um, you can see something of the outside streets still. But if you think of, say, the park in Blow Up, you know, the Antonioni movie, mm-hmm. I mean, we're all, maybe this isn't quite the right word, but all the magic happens, you know? Uh-huh. Right. I mean, that's that's a great example. Like parks, they're almost like something you could order at home if you're writing art history and have it delivered to your house as a template because all the paths, all the paths and glades and hills and so on are all laid out in advance. You just have to follow follow that design, right, to sort of do it at home, to write description at home. But I, I do feel very strongly about that. And that's part of my just general unapologetic and incurable aestheticism, which is to say, you know, I don't hate art. You know, I, I like it. <laughs> and I like the art yeah, of art I history. Think and I don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I think ethically, to me, that's become more and more an important position. Like, there's nothing to apologize for. It's, you know, the experience of aesthetic sensation in one's own prose in, in the pictures one looks at is, of course, related to social inequality, as most everything is. It in, looked at from a certain point of view, it contributes to the social inequality of the world. But in a more pervasive sense for me, that experience of uh, bringing something alive is is full of potentiality, of possibility. It creates a space in the way that art should create a space, mm-hmm. wherein something different from the ordinary pain and cruelty of the world is envisioned. Um, and I feel more and more strongly, as is so related to the aesthetics of lightness, related in the sense that the kind of writing you're asking me about, in addition to being about works that seek this lightness is itself aiming to be light Mm. you know so going to your question yet again this time from a different angle i would say one thing i try to do and this is maybe something that i'm able to do only now in my 50s after having been an art historian for three decades but i try to start the sentence without knowing how it's going to end and just let it let it just trip along and see what I come up with. And then, you know, I would say roughly, you know, as I'm then reviewing the manuscript and of course, you know, there's always much, much editing and revising, but uh, I would say maybe roughly 50% of the time, it's good. Those sentences are good for Mm -hmm. me. You know, the, whatever it was, the sentences you read, I probably didn't know quite how they were going to end. I just knew I was in the ballpark of the right feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, the other 50% of the time, I would say they're really, I, I'm reading the draft and I'm thinking like, I have no idea where this is going or, or this metaphor really is so arcane. Like I just think it's, really ungenerous of me and I just revise it, but whatever, Mm -hmm. that's a pretty good rate, 50% success. And then the other 50%, like any writer, you just edit it out, you omit it or you revise it or you do something or you have a debate with your editor about whether or not it's really deserves a place, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Mm -hmm. One other thing I'll say about this, Allison, I'm sure you think about it is that I tell my students that there's a difference between description and motivated description. So in the passage you read, there's basically a topic sentence there, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's a motivation that tells the reader like, Oh, this is happening in the name of some concept, you know, and uh, the, the pattern of words uh, of language, et cetera, flows from something that's graspable like to do with lightness, et cetera. What, what can be a real killer, I think, is uh, unmotivated description where you just don't, you know, you have no sense of what is at stake in this, in having entered this city park or whatever it is. 
So the, the, the last thing I'll say on this is the rejoinder to that is that, you know, my students or others will say, well, I don't want to kill the mystery. You know, I don't want to say, well, this is about what I'm about to say is about the following and, you know, the, these, these things, you know, and it's true that can be crushingly didactic, but what I try to say is that the topic sentence itself is light or should be, you know, that cueing your reader doesn't have to be some elaborate business of I will show that and you will see and in the following, just get in and out of there very quick. <laughs> just say it's about lightness, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember one time when I used to teach at Yale, my colleague, Chris Wood, who's such a brilliant art historian, he and I were looking at paintings and he just noted in passing something that's really stayed with me, which is that many art historians feel uh, that, you know, they need to really, I don't know, maybe the word is grapple with the work and kind of go on for pages at a time about a picture. And I certainly have done that in my day as though that is what paintings, works of art require. But he said, Chris said, well, actually, there's this whole other way of doing it, you know, where people just look at it. And in two seconds, they just almost with like a turn of their wrist, just say, it's this. Mm-hmm. And their interlocutor kind of the scales drop from their interlocutor's eyes. And it's just like, oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I think that stayed with me. And I think that's another form of lightness. And, you know, um, in this book, I really try to just practice that and, and then, you know, do something else, which is, I think, related to our discussion about novels, which is create a story instead of an argument. Mm. I think this book is very much just a set of stories, and it's not an argument. And I feel so fortunate to have gotten the chance, and frankly, to have learned how to do that kind of book. Wow. Oh, Alex, thank you so much for grappling with that question at such great length. I have to admit, it's it's one of my favorite questions to ask on the podcast, but not every author and not every book lends itself to to asking it and, and such a full answer. It's just, it's very generous of you. There's so much that I'm going to, to take and I'm, I'm absolutely going to modify my how you do visual analysis guidelines for undergraduates to add the word motivated, because I think that changes the the game entirely. If I might follow up about something you said at the very beginning, uh, in terms of kind of the whole purpose of it is to bring the work of art to life. I think that's so well said. And it reminds me of another moment in that chapter when you're talking again about mountains and sea, which I encourage all of our listeners to, to Google and look up, you know, if you don't know that work, it'd be great to, to see it as we're talking about it. But you talk about it um, as if it was like comparable to or parallel with the great history paintings of the 19th century in terms of its scale um, and in terms of the vastness maybe that's in the canvas, even though it's not describing visually a battle or, you know, an epic uh, historical event. And instead, it's a personal thought, you say. It's a personal, a private emotion. This is a totally self-indulgent question, but I want to ask about how to best teach Helen's works. Because this is something I've struggled with so much. When you're teaching abstract expressionism, it it's seemingly so easy to insert her into the narrative. And her paintings absolutely, in my experience, hold up next to the great Rothkos, the great Pollock, so on and so forth. But it's difficult, of course, to convey scale, and that's an element. But I've also experimented with detailed photographs I've taken in museums that, that convey the materiality of her process, the soak in, the overlap, you know, these, these qualities that make her very different from her peers in the larger movement. How do you suggest we best teach the vastness, the scale, the privateness, the materiality, all the things I'm describing? Are there techniques you found that really resonate with students? I agree with your points about showing details, you know, showing an installation shot to give a sense of the scale of the work. 
I think for me, Allison, the main challenge with abstraction would be um, overcoming the perennial um, doubt about the legitimacy of it. Uh, you know, I mean, because if you try to imagine from the point of view of many a student how they might regard a picture such as Mountains and Sea with no preparation, et cetera, and, and, and even Pollock's work for that matter, Mm-hmm. I think it's the teacher needs to imagine it or needs to try to think about correcting the idea that it's random, that it's um, so improvisational as to be of no significance even. Uh, or to put it slightly different, to, to express the bafflement via a slightly different way, you know, that people just say, I don't get it. Like, I don't get it. I don't. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm looking at a, you know, a, a, a lady carrying a, a French flag over a barricade, I can, you know, I under, I can start to look at it and see the different kinds of people she's, who are her companions and go from there or something like that. But so I, I agree with you. Abstraction presents a certain challenge. I have taught that painting. And what I do is try to just follow the contours of my chapter. So I talk about how Helen was actually that very month not really sure if she wanted to continue being a painter and how she was interviewing at Time Life, how she was invited to be on a committee for the Adlai Stevenson uh, presidential campaign. Um, That election between Eisenhower and Stevenson took place 10 days after Helen made Mountains and Sea, Um, how her two sisters were raising families, one of Helen's nephews was born 11 days before she painted Mountains and Sea, how there was pressure on her as a woman to kind of maybe give up her bohemian artist's dream, et cetera, and kind of normatively assemble herself back into the Manhattan Jewishness, uh, you know, the sort of, of her family and its high bourgeois expectations, like all that stuff, to me at least, it makes me feel that my students are starting to look at mountains and sea more and more thinking like, well, yeah, what, what is going on here? If, if she's, if that's all in her world and she's avoiding all that, then this picture seems to have more at stake than I would have guessed. And then I would bring in her, the words of her sociology professor at Bennington, Eric Fromm, who's talking his book escape from freedom and how Americans then and, Certainly Americans now, at least in my opinion, are, you know, need to quote unquote, fill up our free time, you know, as part of our general flight from lightness and uh, from freedom, from open-endedness, right? So there's always another email that can be answered. There's always another show on Netflix you can take in, whatever the case may be. In Fromm's case, you know, he's talking about people taking Sunday drives and eating, you know, heavy dinners on their day off, et cetera, just to kind of almost just fill up, just to fill up the the sort of terrifying existential void of having, you know, some free time. So Helen's work becomes very, if you like, philosophical at that point. I hope for my students too, because it's like, this is part of your life. And I think, you know, I don't know if this is quite right, but I think the scandal of her work to her, its original viewers, and probably even still now, uh, is somewhat analogous to the strangeness of art history, as I try to do it in the classroom and on the page, which is that this this concerns you. It, it comes from the standpoint, hopefully not in a hectoring, badgering way, but basically it's saying it concerns you, as opposed to saying, Allison, this is something that happened and way once upon a time there were these people and you should know about it because it's going to be on the midterm. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm like any teacher. I can't, I can't avoid the occupational hazard of, if you like pouring my soul out and then taking questions. And the first question is, you know, What's going to be on the midterm? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Will this be on the exam? Right. So that's just, uh, you know, as my wife says, I'm a delicate flower, so that can be hard for me sometimes. But I, I, I try to understand that's just part of my job. 
but in any case, yes, there's, there's a, um, the generosity of the work is that it says it, this concerns you. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm going to your question, if I'm walking into the lecture hall or flipping on my computer to do my zoom lecture hall these days, it would mm-hmm. be, that would be the thing that's going through my mind. Make mm-hmm. sure that I try. It's very hard to do often does not, I, I fail because it's so hard to do, but try to get across that this is not just a thing over there. Mm-hmm. This concerns you. I might have to put that up like, I don't know, like Abby Varberg with an animosity over, over the, the front of my library. This concerns you. Yeah. I, I always think about relevance, but maybe that's because I've been so conditioned to, to think about learning goals and objectives. And I think this concerns you is a more human way than me right. constantly saying, where's the relevance, Allison? Make sure this is relevant to their life. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, I think I appreciate you bringing in the word relevance because I think to me, at least it's, it's sort of a higher form of that same concept. It's almost, Mm -hmm. I would say it's the irrelevant that concerns you Mm. and that, you know, the, the world of the relevant is the world of, you know, the newspaper and of Capitol Hill and all things that are, of course, deeply consequential. But as Emerson said, the the artist or the poet is born into other politics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, those politics are not those of Wall Street or Capitol Hill. And uh, this, of course, is not a very popular viewpoint all the time. Um, but when I think about the politics, the ethics of what I do, it is to say that that which you think does not concern you, that is irrelevant, does concern you, you know, or, you know, to sort of paraphrase the, the John Donne poem, No Man is an Island, you know, ask not for whom the bell tolls, you know, it tolls for thee. Well, you know, a painting is ringing for you. I couldn't agree more. I'm, I'm glad too that in answering that question, you summoned some of what I'm glossing very badly, which is how thick this book is with, of course, details from the time in which she lived, intersections between her life and various writers and various critics and various films and I mean, the book is is astoundingly thick with this kind of, you know, what were the 1950s like in addition to what was her life trajectory within it? I don't want to ask a huge question at the end here, (laughs) but I can't help but want to dig in a little bit in the time we have left about the role of biography, both in this book as a biography and maybe within art history, because if visual analysis is less contentious, I think biography is still a real minefield of problematics. And in the middle part of the book, I think it's in the fifth chapter, you you kind of reveal your cards a little bit and do talk very forthcomingly about the propensity to regard a painting biographically kind of being a trap or a game. And, and you toggle back and forth between, okay, her paintings are drawn from her own depth, depths, but they're not depicting her life, i.e. there are no paintings that are immediate reactions to the breakup with Greenberg or not to, I feel bad because it does read as such a novel. I don't want there to be any spoiler alerts, but you know, she does have really devastating things happen in her life, in particular, her mother's suicide. So how do you grapple with this element? I mean, did it, I don't know, were you, were you at all averse or prickly to being so in-depth into biography since this is a biography? Or did you get over it immediately and think, this is what I'm writing and I love it and it's going to be fun? I think more the latter. I think okay. it's such a great question, <laughs> but I think I, I feel it was very much about my maturity as a writer and part of uh, not only the switch from argument to story, but a certain awareness on my part that details because the book has a kind of gossipy feeling at times, I think personal details, very private details Mm -hmm. are very hard to do as a writer. It's hard to do that. So the, 
the maturity, the growth for me had to do with basically realizing that biography, which I might have regarded as like, um, you know, part of the ordinary salacious world of prying into people's lives and so on, and it's not right and it's not proper and it takes away from the work itself, et cetera, uh, is so, well, it's like holding a person's life in, in your hands. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a f- kind of high seriousness. And at every moment, you have to make very careful calculations, which I would describe very roughly, very broadly as being fearless on the one hand, like there's nothing that's off limits. And on the other hand, being very sensitive. So you don't want to be so circumspect that it's like you kind of drop the ball, like you, you're not really telling it how it was, what, what you feel it was like. But you also don't want to be grim and, you know, kind of um, unpleasant, vulgar, you know. And my own family, you know, my aunt and my father have both been discussed biographically and, you know, pretty, I guess I would just say like (laughs) in ways that um, certainly leave no stone unturned or probably turn over some stones that maybe, I don't know what the metaphor is, but don't even, don't even exist. I, I don't know. But in any case, I'm sensitized to like the vulgarity of biography as a mode. So, but at the same time, I'm really appreciative of how difficult it is to do with with care and i i would just maybe say that that care would be somewhere in the version somewhere in the ballpark allison of being on the one hand um the the subject's advocate or like being there with her and on the other hand not being a lapdog not being uh like a publicist, right? Mm -hmm. Forget, I mean, forget that, absolutely forget that. So uh, you, it's hard, it's hard to do. And I have great newfound respect for how that, how, how it is to do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Fearless and sensitive. That's what I've written down as as the takeaway to think about as I'm grappling with where biography goes in my own art historical work. Well, I have taken up a lot of your time. I have about 54 more questions that I could ask you, of course. Um, But I'd like to ask the traditional last question here on the the New Books Network, uh, which is just if you could tell us what you're working on now. What can we look forward to coming out in the, the next year or two in your career? Yes, thank you for that. I in 2017 I gave some lectures on um, called the Forest America in the 1830s at the National Gallery in Washington, the Mellon Lectures. And right after I gave those, the Frankenthaler book emerged, and I have spent the intervening time writing it. But now, in our COVID year, I've been writing the Forest book. I'm just it's due. On June first, it's I'm just finalizing it now, and it's been such a lovely book to write. And its subtitle is "A Fable of America in the 1830s." So notice, not a history of America in the 1830s, but a fable, mm-hmm. the forest, a fable. And I think it's although the subject is totally different. I think it's very related to the Frankenthaler book. It's story based. It's novelistic. It's and it's trying to make contact with life. Mm-hmm. Wow, I'm even more honored that you agreed to do this interview, knowing now that June first is your deadline, which is in. You know, I won't reveal when we're recording this, but that's very soon. So, oh, you've just been so generous with your time, and I'll only say to listeners that those Mellon lectures that Alex is speaking of are on the National Gallery of Arts website, recordings of them, and if you've enjoyed our interview today. Well, you are not even ready for how enjoyable you will find those those lectures, which is, I should also mention, one of the most prestigious uh, venues that you can be asked to speak in as an art historian. So thank you again so much for your time. Um, I appreciate you taking the time out to, to discuss this with us. And I imagine listeners will really enjoy hearing your thoughts on the process of writing the book and methods in art history and everything. 
Thank you, Allison. Such a pleasure to talk with you. All right. My name is Allison Lee, and you've been listening to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I've been talking to Alexander Nemirov about his new book, Fierce Poise, Helen Frankenthaler and 1950s New York. Thanks so much for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.